He lived a dream life, traveling the world and working with and partying with A-list celebrities such as Diana, the Princess of Wales, Kate Moss, Eric Clapton, Madonna, and Elton John, just to name a few. People wanted to be around him. He was well-read, handsome, and his opinion mattered. He had a lasting influence on the world of fashion. His name was Johnny Versace. The other character in our tale had similar dreams. His father was a high-ranking officer in the Philippine Army, a close confidant of President Ferdinand Marcos. His mother came from a wealthy European Jewish family. He went to school in a Rolls Royce and grew up surrounded by wealth and privilege. He attended Choate and Yale and studied in Europe, except all this was a lie. Andrew Kanonan's father was a U.S. Navy Vietnam veteran who became a stockbroker in San Diego. He was a stern disciplinarian who was accused of embezzlement and abandoned the family when Andrew was 19. Andrew's Italian-American Catholic mother was left destitute, living off public assistant in a cheap apartment. He didn't attend private schools back east. He attended high school in San Diego and the University of California, San Diego. And Johnny Versace had the life that Andrew Cananan wanted. So Andrew set out to find that life for himself, building it not on a fashion empire, but on drugs and violence and lies. So mix yourself in the groany and hear our tale of the icon and the poser. Macy, I've talked a little bit about Andrew Cunanan's background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Johnny Versace? Who was he? What did he do with his life? Johnny Versace was born in Reggio Calabria, Italy, on December 2nd, 1946. His mother was a dressmaker, so that's where he got his talent for fashion design and sewing. And he was strongly influenced by Greek history, which dominates the historic landscape of his birthplace. He became a young apprentice at his mother's sewing shop, and he moved to Milan at the age of 26 to work in fashion design. His first boutique was opened in Milan's Via della Spiga in 1978. When it comes to Versace's fashion empire, his designs contained vivid colors, bold prints, and sexy cuts a refreshing contrast to the prevailing taste for muted colors and simplicity. His aesthetic combines luxurious classism with overt sexuality. He had a very famous rivalry with Giorgio Armani and was quoted to have said, Armani dresses the wife, Versace dresses the mistress. Versace eventually employed his sister Donatella as vice president of his company and his brother Santo as president. 
Donatella acted as uh, a key consultant to Versace. Versace also employed Donatella's husband, Paul Beck, as director of menswear. Versace's designs were inspired by his Italian heritage and Greco-Roman art. He was also inspired by contemporary artists Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol. Versace was the first to employ celebrities in his marketing campaigns, and he seated them in the front rows of his fashion shows. He is credited with inventing the supermodel vogue of the 1990s by discovering and featuring major supermodels like Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, and Linda Evangelista. At the time of his death, Versace's empire was valued at $807 million, which is over $1.3 billion in today's money, and included over 130 boutiques across the world. Not only was Versace a haute couture designer, but he also designed for the stage. Versace was a collaborator for the La Scala Theatre Ballet in Milan and designed costumes for Strauss's Josef Legende in 1982 and Donizetti's Don Pasquale. He designed costumes for five Biart Ballet productions, Dionysos in 1984, Leda and the Swan in 1987, Marlowe Ola Metamorphosis de Dieu, 1986, Shaka Zulu, 1989, and Ballet du Messiesle. In 1990, he designed costumes for the San Francisco Opera's production of Capriccio. Versace also designed Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney on their 1983 Say 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 video and Elton John's costumes for his 1992 world tour. When Johnny Versace was murdered, he left his company to his sister Donatella. Donatella and Johnny were very close, and Johnny persuaded Donatella to dye her hair her iconic blonde color when she was 11 because he was a big fan of Italian singer Patti Pravo. When Donatella started working for Johnny, she had planned to work in PR. However, she says she was more valuable to him as a muse and a critic. A year after Johnny's death, she held her first haute couture show for the Versace Atelier in Paris. Her first years as head of the company were unstable until she defined a new feminist proposition for the brand in 2005. Donatella designed Jennifer Lopez's famous jungle dress for the Grammys in 2000. She eventually sold Versace to Capri Holdings, Michael Kors, in 2018, but remains the chief creative officer. So a lot of what we think of as fashion today was influenced by Johnny Versace and his family. Right. Definitely. They they are still fashion royalty, even though Johnny has been gone uh, 27 years now. And he was he was also quite a jet setter, wasn't he? He spent a lot of time traveling the world, going to parties and uh, events. Yep. Very much. Right. Well, Andrew, Andrew Kunanen, who also went by Andrew De Silva, um, aspired to that kind of life, but didn't have the the talent to to actually accomplish that. He dropped out of college in 1988 and moved to the Castro District of San Francisco. Uh, for a while, he lived with his best friend from high school, Elizabeth Coates, and her boyfriend. Now, Andrew was extremely intelligent. His IQ was measured at, at 147 in high school, and he had a wide range of interests. Um, he could talk about art, gourmet food, 
and opera. Uh, he had a penchant for fancy, expensive jewelry and clothes, but he didn't always have the money to satisfy those desires. So early on, he began forming relationships with older, wealthy men, men such as John Blatchford, a retired inventor and a multimillionaire. Andrew lived with him in the early to mid-1990s, and Blatchford provided him with an allowance of $2,000 a month and gave him an infinity to tool around in. They would frequently fly to New York to see Broadway shows and thought nothing of hopping on a jet and vacationing in the south of France uh, on the Mediterranean. Now, Andrew had expensive tastes, and he had a number of other uh, friends that he was seeing, both platonic friends and, and romantic interests, during his time with Blatchford, and he thought nothing of giving expensive gifts to them and picking up the tab for dinners at high-dollar restaurants. Blatchford didn't get to be a multimillionaire, though, by spending his money uh, like that, and uh, he began to pay attention to the bottom line, and the two began to argue and fight about money. Eventually, in 1996, they parted ways. Andrew said he was tired of John's nickel and diming ways, so they broke up. Uh, Andrew eventually met Jeff Trail, a former Navy officer, a Gulf War veteran, and a former California Highway Patrolman. The two became very good friends. They spent a lot of time together, and there is a dispute over whether they were lovers. Kananan described him as my closest friend, my brother. Uh, later, Trail's sister believed that Andrew had a, an infatuation with her brother. She said he had an unhealthy obsession. She said if Jeff got a new haircut, Andrew would have to get the same one. If Jeff bought a particular uh, piece of clothing, such as a, a ball cap, Andrew immediately went out and bought something identical. When it came to their lifestyle, however, they were quite different. A trail was, was very conservative, uh, very anti-drug, and uh, Andrew was the opposite. He certainly had, uh, had no problems uh, imbibing in, in, uh, in drugs ranging from uh, marijuana to, to ecstasy and, and even heroin. In fact, when, when Andrew broke up with John Blatchford and, and Blatchford cut off the money, uh, Andrew began selling drugs to support himself. This upset Trail, and he began to distance himself from Andrew. He eventually moved to Minneapolis to take a, a job as a distributor with Feller Gas. And Trail told friends that one reason he left California was to get away from Cunanan. He said that Andrew wanted him to provide security for his illegal drug business, or as Andrew called it, his import-export gig. Uh, Trail refused. Um, then, before he left, he bought a gun, telling friends, I'm safe. I got this, showing them the gun. In 1995, uh, Andrew met David Madsen, a former ski instructor and a successful architect. The two began dating, and Andrew would refer to Madsen as the love of his life. By 1996, Madsen's 
project in California was over, and he returned to his company's home office in Minneapolis. Andrew and Madsen tried to maintain a long-distance relationship, but it didn't work out, and Madsen broke off their affair. By now, Andrew Cunanan was in a downward spiral. Trail and Madsen were both living in Minneapolis, but they weren't together, but this fueled a growing paranoia on Andrew's part that the two may have been involved with one another and were talking about him. Andrew was also involved in fairly heavy drug use by this time, and he told some friends in San Diego that he had contracted HIV. He told a counselor, I'm going to get the person that did this to me. In fact, after he died, his autopsy showed no evidence that he, in fact, had the virus. As much as Andrew Cunanan depended on older, wealthy men to support him, he also had a very manipulative personality. He was very dominant and could convince people to do things for him that they really didn't want to do. Jeff Trail, a very conservative, straight-laced military veteran with high moral standards, would frequently lie to others on Andrew's behalf because Andrew wanted him to. David Madsen was a, a very passive man, known to be a peacemaker. Andrew convinced him to participate in very rough BDSM sex that Madsen said he didn't really enjoy, but he did it because Andrew wanted him to. In 1997, Andrew told people he was going to Minneapolis to settle some business with an old friend. When Andrew arrived in Minneapolis on April 27th, he contacted Madsen and the two went out to dinner and spent the night together at Matson's apartment. They spent the next night at Trail's apartment. Uh, Jeff Trail was out of town with, with his boyfriend. But the next night, um, Trail had, had returned home, and Cunanan called him and asked him to meet him at Matson's apartment. He said, it won't take long, but I need to talk to you about something. That night, a neighbor heard yelling and, and loud noises coming from Matson's apartment. Trail was supposed to meet his boyfriend later that night, but didn't show up. Uh, his boyfriend was very upset, uh, looked for him and couldn't find him. He called the police to file a missing persons report, but the police said, look, he's 28 years old. He's a big boy. He can take care of himself. Two days later, Matson didn't show up for work. A co-worker went to his apartment and convinced the manager to open the door. When they opened the door, they saw blood splattered all over the walls and a body wrapped up in a rug. It was later identified as Jeff Trail. He had been beaten to death with a claw hammer, and his face was unrecognizable. He had also been shot with his own gun. The police at first thought that the victim was Matson since it was his apartment, but later they identified Trail because of a Marvin the Martian tattoo on his ankle. They also found a duffel bag at the scene of the crime, and when they examined it a few months later, they saw Andrew Cunanan's name uh, on the bag. And uh, later, when they investigated more thoroughly, they found... Uh, a voicemail on an answering machine 
from Cananan. A neighbor saw Matson's red jeep leave the scene. Matson was now considered a suspect in the murder, not the victim. But then on May 3rd, police discovered David Matson's body near Rush Lake, north of Minneapolis. He had been shot three times, once in the eye, once in the head, and once in the chest with Jeff Trail's gun. There was no evidence that Matson had been tied up or restrained in any way. In fact, witnesses reported that they had been seen together on May 2nd, the day before, uh, driving the Jeep north on Interstate 35, and in fact, eating lunch together in a bar. Did Matson and Cunanan both participate in Jeff Trail's murder? Or did Madsen walk in his apartment as Cunanan was killing Jeff Trail? Did Andrew kidnap Madsen and force him to drive him to the lake and kill him? We'll never know. At some point while in San Diego, Andrew had mentioned that he was going to get a real job. He told friends he was going in business with a handsome young race car driver and pilot named Duke Miglin and they were going to open a business in Mexico building prefabricated movie sets. On May 4th, police discovered the body of Duke Miglin's father, Lee Miglin, under a car in his garage in a wealthy section of Chicago. His hands and feet were bound, and his body was partially wrapped in plastic and brown paper and tape. His face was encased in tape except for two air holes at his nostrils. His ribs had been broken, and he had been stabbed in the chest four times with garden shears, and his throat had been cut open with a garden bow saw. The murderer had actually spent the night in Miglin's bed following the murder, and had left a half-eaten ham sandwich on a tray in the library. He bathed and shaved in the master bedroom and he left a toy gun near the sink, almost as if he were taunting the police. Between $8,000 and $10,000 was missing from Miglin's home, as well as several of his suits and his Lexus. Lee Miglin was a very wealthy and successful real estate developer. His wife was a home shopping network personality. Later, investigators found a 1988 copy of Architectural Digest in Andrew's home. The magazine had an article featuring Nee Miglin and had photos of his home. Did Andrew Cunanan know Lee Miglin? He had spent quite a bit of time in Chicago over the years. Did Andrew Cunanan know Duke Miglin? Did they really plan to go into business together? Duke Miglin and his family vehemently denied that neither Duke nor Lee had ever heard of Andrew Cunanan. They thought it was just a random killing. Again, another crime for which the motive is unknown. Andrew drove Miglin's Lexus from Chicago to New York and made several phone calls on the car phone. On Friday, May 9th, William Reese was late getting home from his job at a caretaker 
at a historical cemetery in Pennsville, New Jersey. His wife went to check on him. She saw a dark green Lexus, but no sign of her husband's bright red 1995 Chevy truck. His office door was open and the radio was playing. She called police. When they arrived, they found William Reese dead in the basement. He had been shot in the head with Jeff Trail's gun. And Andrew Cunanan was on his way to Miami with Jeff Trail's gun and William Reese's truck. For two months, Andrew Cunanan hid in plain sight around Miami. On June 12th, he was placed on the FBI's most wanted list for murder. He pawned items in local pawn shops using his own name. He frequented bars where some people recognized him from the wanted poster and commented to each other about the serial killer showing up at the bar. But no one ever called the police. By July 4th, he had run out of money. He checked out of his hotel without paying for the last night. The next morning, he was at Casa Casarina, Giovanni Versace's mansion in Miami Beach. Versace's partner usually went to a local newsstand to pick up coffee and newspapers every morning, but on that morning, Johnny went to pick them up. As he stood on the front steps of his mansion, Andrew approached him and shot him in the back of the head, execution style, and also shot him in the cheek. He was pronounced dead 40 minutes later. Nine days later, a caretaker reported hearing a gunshot on a luxury houseboat in Miami Beach. There, the police found Andrew Cunanan's body. He had shot himself in the mouth. There was no suicide note. Why Johnny Versace? There was no proven connection between the men, though they may have met in San Francisco in the late 1980s or early 1990s. Friends reported that Andrew approached Johnny at an opera, and Johnny said, I know you, Lago di Como, no? Andrew replied, Thank you for remembering, Signor Versace. Doug Stubblefield, a research analyst and a friend of Andrew's, said that during Versace's San Francisco visit, he was walking on Market Street when a white limo pulled over and Andrew Cunanan rolled down the window and called him over. Inside the car, Stubblefield said, were Andrew Cunanan, Johnny Versace, and Harvey DeWilt, a local socialite. DeWilt, however, categorically denies that this episode ever took place. He said, I never had the pleasure or the displeasure of meeting Andrew Cunanan. As for Johnny Versace's family, they vehemently deny that Johnny ever met or knew Andrew Cunanan. So again, we may never know the truth. Was Johnny Versace just a celebrity who Andrew Cunanan killed in a futile reach for fame? Did he harbor some irrational jealousy against someone who had everything that he wanted? Or 
Was there a more personal reason for the assassination of Johnny Versace? Today's episode is brought to you by Landlocked KC. You guys know how much we love fashion and our hometown of Kansas City here at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. One of my favorite local clothing companies is Landlocked KC. Not only does Landlocked help all of us Kansas Cityans show off our KC pride with their Comeback City collection, but they also advocate for equality in race, religion, orientation, and gender with their equality collection. If you're all about a good comeback, whether that's about the Royals and Chiefs coming back to win the World Series and Super Bowl, or about our community coming back from the COVID shutdown and current political climate, you'll find some amazing new pieces in Landlock's Comeback City collection. I recently purchased Landlock's Coach's logo jacket, and I'm obsessed. You can see how I styled it on our social media pages. Check out the rest of Landlock's fun pieces at www.landlockedco.com. Show us what you buy in our VIP Facebook group. Oh, and go Chiefs! Thank you, Dad. That was the perfect story to culminate our season one of Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We have crime. We have fashion. We're about to have a cocktail. It has everything it's our dream. It is. It's This is it. This is it. And we're living the dream. How are we going to top it? We are, though. Oh, we are. We're already <laughs> making plans for oh, next yeah. season. We are. All right. Well, I did already discuss, I went into a lot of detail about Johnny Versace, Donatella Versace, the company itself. But uh, we do have a Trends of the Crime section sponsored by Style a la Mode. And this is the part of our show where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about 90s fashion in Miami because that was a lot of fun. Um, I'm mainly working off my own knowledge here. So I'm picturing beachwear, bright, neon, bold high-cut one-pieces for women, also two-pieces, but the bottoms were high-cut um, for guys, very loud swim trunks or Speedos, and Miami Vice. Mm -hmm. Why don't you describe Miami Vice? I wasn't around. Well, actually, I don't think I've ever seen an entire episode oh, okay. of Miami Vice, I, but I remember the commercials for it. I remember the the white suits and the, and the very bright... Uh, shirts with the collars hanging out um nothing nothing that i ever wore i can promise <laughs> you that but but again i think the just a lot of color mm -hmm. that's what i remember just a lot of color bright neon pinks lime greens bright yellows mm -hmm. me too yeah well i think that's suitable okay all right <laughs> let's uh and I'll talk a little bit more about what Andrew Cunanan was shown wearing in the TV show I'm going to bring up a lot. Um, yeah, he was just very preppy and uh, wore a lot of suits to try and make himself look, you know, more, uh, what am I looking for? More high end, uh, you know, just to make himself look better than other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, Versace, we already described his aesthetic, but. Yeah, that played a big role in this time. He was a major, major celebrity at this time. Like today, we don't think of a lot of fashion designers as celebrities, but he was. So, yeah. And the world was very sad when he died in the world of fashion. 
All right. Well, before we talk about the crime itself, what's a Negroni? Well, a Negroni is a one of our classic cocktails, and uh, since it probably originated in Italy, I thought this would be appropriate uh, an appropriate drink to go along with the Versace story. It has three components, all in equal measure. A good quality gin, a good quality sweet vermouth, and Campari, which is uh, a bitter uh, liqueur. Legend has it that it was originated in Florence, Italy at the Café Rivoir, and uh, it was named after Count Negroni, who went to the bar one day and uh, asks for um, something a little bit more stiff than his usual Americano. And Americano was Campari, sweet vermouth, and club soda. So the bartender ditched the club soda, wise choice, and added, uh, and added gin instead. And so it has now taken its place in the pantheon of, of classic cocktails. So that's what we're going to be uh, mixing up. You know, we have a wonderful place in Lawrence that will make a cocktail for you based on ingredients that you choose. Mm -hmm. How come they don't name them after me? How do you get a cocktail named after you? Well, I think you you go in and you uh, pose that question to them. Oh, I will. I think you should. After the pandemic, I'm going to now. And I want to be there and and watch and and listen to exactly what they tell you, since that might be a good story for... uh, Yes. For cocktails of crime and fashion as sure. we talk about the uh, the Macy. The Macy, there yes. There we go. Shout out to John Brown's Underground in Lawrence. Love Wonderful that. establishment. Love that place. Yes, we love that place. All right. I watched The Assassination of Johnny Versace, American Crime Story on Netflix during quarantine. Uh, it's been a few months since I finished it, but I am going to be... Basing a lot of what I say off of how the show portrayed things, which, mm-hmm. of course, you know, in your story, you were talking about what we know for sure. And there's a lot that we don't know, but the show kind of had their way of filling in that information. So as a as one perspective, I'll just say what the show said about certain things. Um, and the that TV show was based off of Maureen Orth's book, Vulgar Favors, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. Uh, And quickly, I wanted to go over who the main actors were in this show. Um, Edgar Ramirez played Johnny Versace. Darren Chris, who played Blaine and Glee, played Andrew Cunanan. He did really well in that. Ricky Martin was Antonio D'Amico, who was Johnny Versace's partner, uh, Penelope Cruz played Donatella Versace. She also was fabulous. And then Jeff Trails was played by, I don't know his name, but he was just the bad guy in Ratchet on Netflix. Have you watched that yet, I've Dad? I've not seen that yet. That's on my list. It's a good one. So yeah, Jeff Trails plays the the really evil guy in that show. All right. Let's talk about Andrew's personality. It's a doozy. He's mm-hmm. very, very, very manipulative. He was. Very much so, and, and a pathological liar. Yes. Um, I think I, I talked at the very beginning of, of my section about uh, 
how he presented his background. Mm-hmm. Um, he said his father was a army officer in the Philippines who was very close to the president of the Philippines. His mother was uh, um, uh, from a very rich and wealthy Jewish European family when really nothing uh, could have been farther from the truth. He exaggerated his education. Um, he would he was very well read, though, very intelligent, but would find opinions and, and pass them off as his own. So, uh, yeah, I think manipulative certainly describes him. Uh, he just had a way about him that he could get people to do what he wanted them to do. And believe anything he said. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everyone believed him. I'll get to that later. Um, but a lot of people believed things he said, mm-hmm. even no matter how how outrageous they seemed. So, yep. um, did he finish college? No. Okay, I didn't think so. I think he dropped out after his first or second year. Yeah, because he was very intelligent, but he wasn't a school guy. No. Yeah, I I don't know if that was portrayed in the show or if I read that. I can't remember. Um, and interestingly, Andrew was voted most likely to be remembered in high school. Well, I don't remember anyone else from that high school class, so I think they nailed that one. They sure did. They they got that one on the nose. And this is also kind of spooky. Um, you know how some high schools you get to have a senior quote in the yearbook? Mm-hmm. Andrew's quote was, Après moi le déluge which was attributed to King Louis XV and literally translates to After Me, the Flood. In a historical context, it has been translated to After Me Comes Disaster. When Louis XV stated this in 1757, it was an ominous reference to the disaster that he would leave in his wake after he died. Also just creepy because Andrew Cunanan really altered the world of fashion and the lives of all of his victims' families. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's crazy. Like, of course, everyone who was murdered, like, their whole lives and their families' whole lives are completely changed. But he altered a cultural a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. He changed a lot of people and a lot of fashion decisions and just a lot of things. Uh, Andrew's dad, Pete, was also a pathological liar and really enjoyed embellishing things about himself and his family. Um, and he also in the show, in that TV show was portrayed as verbally and physically abusive towards his wife. I know dad said he was disciplinarian, so quite possible. He did not touch his wife, but in the show he did. So we don't know. Um, no, he was also a crook, right? He, he was, <laughs> he embezzled, I think millions of dollars from yes. his clients since he was a stockbroker. And as the police moved in, um, he moved out. He moved to. He moved back to the Philippines. Yep. And uh, didn't want to go to court. Left his family high and dry with no money. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, his wife went on uh, on welfare. Yep. And they really show that in the TV show as well. Just how all of a sudden they get home, Pete's gone, and a bunch of stuff is gone, and it's crazy. Um. Oh, go ahead. Did they did they uh, reference on the on the TV show the fact that uh, Andrew shoved his mother into the wall and separated her shoulder one day? I think they showed him pushing her. I don't think they said 
how they how she got hurt, but I do remember him pushing her. Right. Evidently, uh, when she found out he was gay, uh, they got into a, a very big argument, and he ended up shoving her into the wall and, and dislocating her shoulder. Oh, no. That hurts. Mm-hmm. I know that hurts. That's really sad. Yeah, I don't... Th- it, okay, I don't... I feel like he pushed her, but it wasn't for that. They may have just put that in somewhere else. Um, something else interesting. Uh, I believe Andrew had three other siblings, two, mm-hmm. si- three siblings. Mm-hmm. And Pete really loved Andrew and really spoiled him. He was so spoiled that Andrew was given the master bedroom in their house. And Pete bought Andrew a car when Andrew was 11 years old. Couldn't mm-hmm. drive the car, but he bought him a car. Man. So that's weird. It is. <laughs> well, I'm glad I never bought you a car when you were 11 years old. Who knows how you would have turned out. Oh, God. The, the amazing young woman that you are today, all <laughs> because I didn't spoil you like that. Right. So you're welcome. Thank you. I think you guys spoiled me a little bit. I'm not going to kill anybody. So Andrew was also the only sibling to be enrolled in an elite private school. None of the other siblings got to go to a fancy school like he did. Fancy high school. And this was something he had to apply for and like test into. But I feel like on the TV show, they didn't like him during the interview or something. But he got in anyway. I don't remember. If you remember, tell me on the Facebook group. No, No, not you. Someone who watched it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, as we mentioned, Pete fled the U.S. in 1988. And in an article I found, it said because his wife accused him of misappropriating $106,000 from his stock brokerage business, and he wanted to avoid court. So he fled to the Philippines, and while he was there, he joined a survivalist cult. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't know that either. Yes. And uh, he still maintains, I believe he's still alive. I'm not positive on that, but. Uh, He maintains his son's innocence, uh, says his son was not gay. Uh, He was an altar boy, a good Catholic boy, and was not gay, even though Andrew said that he was gay all the time. Um, And Pete even planned a documentary following Andrew's death. Obviously not a a successful one, because never even heard of it. So, no. yeah. Did you see if he's alive still? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, looks like he died in 2005. Oh, well, he he maintained his son's innocence throughout the rest of his life. He died in 2005 in the Philippines. All right. Does it say how? He was 74 years old, so oh, okay. I'm just assuming it was natural causes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Andrew had a lot of friends. And a lot of those friends were wealthy, older men. And uh, these men would take him to operas, fancy dinners, trips. And Andrew really got to live that lavish lifestyle he wanted with these men. And they gave him allowances. And as dad mentioned, at one point, Andrew wanted more money. And then got, who was this one? He got in a fight with about money that you talked about. I believe his name was... uh, Blatchford. Blatchford, yes. Yeah. So they broke up because of money, but Andrew would always 
have fancy men. Um, and of course, it's not been confirmed that these were sexual relationships. I guess the Blatchford one was a romantic, right? That's my understanding. But, you know, we've got to remember this was back in the 1990s, and that was over 20 years ago. And, and things have changed in society mm -hmm. in, in the past 20 to 25 years. Uh, today, it's it's not uncommon for a person to embrace their sexuality. But back then, it, it, it was. It carried mm -hmm. a risk. And a lot of the people that Cunanan hung around with uh, were married. Uh, they were business people, and if they were to be outed, uh, could have disastrous financial and cultural uh, results. So, you know, we just don't know uh, about a lot of these people. Now, one thing that I discovered that I'd never heard of before uh, is a fraternity called Gamma Mu. Um, and it's it was founded in Fort Lauderdale. It wasn't a typical college fraternity, but it was a, a, essentially a, a group of, of gay men who uh, came together and performed charitable acts. They have scholarships for LGBTQ people. They're still around today. But um, it was uh, by invitation only. And uh, some of the men, particularly Blatchford, uh, were part of that. And uh, Blatchford would introduce Andrew to other men who were members of the fraternity. So um, he he evidently moved in in that circle of wealthy, older, sometimes married, uh, closeted gay men. And uh, at the time of the murders, when this came out, uh, a lot of people were, were terrified because they had either met Cunanan socially or they knew someone who knew him. And people were just terrified that they were going to be outed. Well, on the TV show, it was portrayed that Lee Miglin and Andrew had a sexual relationship where every time Andrew was in Chicago, they would meet up, um, but not confirmed. Both both parties are gone now, so right. And and to to just uh, be fair, uh, Miglin's family has uh, denied consistently that they ever knew each other. In fact, one of the sisters sat uh, Duke Miglin down. Mm -hmm. And just asked him point blank, do you know this person? Did you introduce him to dad? Are you gay? Mm -hmm. And uh, he denied it vociferously at the time and still does. No, I never met this person. I'm not gay. Never have been gay. So, again, who knows? But uh, there's a lot of denial from people who were said to have been involved with Andrew Cunanan. Well, it makes you wonder if. Lee and Andrew didn't know each other. How did he get into his house easily? That's the thing. It's I like, I mean, of course, like you said, it was 23 years ago. Of course, they're going to lie and say, I'm not gay because they're married. I mean, even today, if you're married, you, you know, of course. I think there had to be some connection. Yeah. Either, either with Lee, probably, or with the son. There had to have been some reason that he was able to go to his house and go inside on a time when uh, the wife was out of town. Mm -hmm. So, who yeah. knows? And she, 
on the show, she was out of town a lot because HSN is not in, was not in Chicago. Right. So she would have to travel to, now it's in St. Petersburg. I don't know if it was there then, but she would have to travel to do her segments on Home Shopping Network. So she was gone a lot. So, I mean, she doesn't know what goes on when she's gone. No. Yeah. So anyway, going back to Blatchford on American Crime Story, Blatchford and Andrew went to the San Francisco opera Capriccio. And that was the opera that Versace designed costumes for. And supposedly Andrew met Johnny Versace there. Um, and then later saw him at a club and then they got to talking more, but we don't know if that really happened. Um, but that's one, one theory that Andrew had met Johnny Versace. And then, uh, then later it's shown that Andrew really keeps up with Johnny's career and becomes very jealous and is like, if he can get all this, why can't I get all this? And that's, and then when he was on his murder spree, he was just spiraling and spiraling. And that's, the jealousy of made him kill Versace is that how it's portrayed. That does ring true to me because mm-hmm. he he was and as you said, it just a spiraling down, mm-hmm. and uh, I could certainly buy that mm-hmm. explanation that it was just a irrational dark jealousy. Yep. And he had run out of money by that time. He knew he was probably going to be arrested any time. The police knew where he was. They had his truck, or they had. Uh, the stolen truck. And I think this was just his last statement. Mm-hmm. Sad. Sad. Yep. I did want to talk about Jeff Trail because interestingly, he was on an episode of 48 Hours in the early to mid 90s to talk about being closeted in the military. This was because Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell went into effect in 94. Um, and Trail was gay and in the Navy. And he had to hide who he was. And so I guess 48 Hours must have done an episode about that. And he was anonymous on there because if he had not gone on there not anonymously, he would have been discharged. Right. So. Well, he was uh, he was a Gulf War vet. Obviously served his country honorably. He was an expert marksman. Uh, and uh, then I believe he became a, a police officer. Hmm. Joined the California Highway Patrol. And then... Resigned. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one really knows why. He, I think he indicated he just got tired of the harassment and the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's horrible. When he, that's when he took the job in Minneapolis and moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on that forty eight hours episode, he had a really good quote that says, "Whether people like it or not, there are gays in the military. They're very top notch performers. They know what they're doing." You're going to weaken our national defense if you remove gays from the military, and you'll never be able to do it 100%. It's just whether or not you're going to continue to hunt us and force us to fear. Well said. On American Crime Story, uh, Trail and Kunanan were portrayed as just close friends, not never anything more, but who knows. Um, there's a scene that I remember where Trail attends Kunanan's birthday party that he was having at one of the rich guy's homes. Uh, and the gift that Trail brings, I don't remember what it was, but it's not up to Andrew's standards. And Andrew takes Jeff and the gift and goes into the homeowner's closet and tells Jeff to pretend that he gave Andrew this fancy pair of shoes instead. So 
I was like, uh, rude. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example of Jeff lying for Andrew. And it happened in in other instances, too, I think I Mm -hmm. read about, um, where he he had this way of of just convincing people to do things they wouldn't normally do because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to displease him. And I don't think it was a physical thing. I don't think Jeff Trail was physically afraid of Andrew Cunanan, but just this manipulative personality that he went along with whatever Cunanan wanted him to do. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think Darren Chris portrayed him I mean, obviously, I obviously I don't know the real uh, Andrew Cunanan, but the way that he portrayed him, he just had this air of confidence all the time. He walked very straight, great posture, just gracefully walked around and was just like, I know everything. Come talk to me. I'll be your classy guide to life. You know, so mm-hmm. I think it was just, yeah, it was just something about him that people mm-hmm. wanted to be around, wanted to impress. I don't know. Just interesting. I'm sure he would have trapped me, but it just seemed like he's just good at yeah. that. I don't know. Yeah. On to David Madsen. Andrew was much more infatuated and in love with David than he was with Andrew. Um, in the show, Andrew took David on this weekend getaway with this fancy hotel that he couldn't really afford, you know, took him on a shopping spree, fancy meals. And you could tell that David was like weirded out. He was like, how can you afford all this? Like what's going on? And he, he seemed to never really completely uh, believe, at least by the end of their relationship, didn't really believe the stuff that Andrew was saying to him. I think that Andrew's infatuation of David scared, started to scare David away and he didn't want to be around that anymore. I think that's accurate. I think, in fact, David said something like that. You just can't believe anything this guy says. Yes. And uh, he was glad to go back to Minneapolis. I I don't think he left because he was afraid of Andrew, but it was his project was over. He went back. And when he found out that Andrew was coming to Minneapolis to to visit him, David and Jeff, uh, neither one of them wanted him to come. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it was Jeff made the comment when someone said, well, why don't you just tell him he can't, you don't want to see him? He said, oh, he's just kind of like that relative that always shows up on your doorstep and you can't really tell him mm-hmm. they can't stay there. So, again, just this relationship was so warped that he couldn't do what he wanted to do, which was say, no, I don't want to see you anymore. Mm-hmm. And he was worried that Jeff and David were in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably... One reason. I think, did you say that in there? Yeah, that he was, that he, Andrew, was was paranoid about the fact that maybe they moved to Minneapolis because they were together. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, from what I could tell. They, they, I don't, I assume they knew each other because they both knew Andrew, but they were not romantically involved. In fact, they, they had both had uh, boyfriends, separate boyfriends when they were in Minneapolis. But yeah, I think I think by this time Andrew's starting to spiral. He's out of money. His friends have left, and now he's starting to see things and believe things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. And according to the facts, we don't know if David knew if David was a an accomplice to the murder or uh, the murder of Jeff, or if he was kidnapped. 
the show portrayed it as a kidnapping and a hostage situation where David was just in shock when he saw what had happened. So in the show, David was in the shower or something or taking the dog out or something when Jeff was murdered. And then he like came in and saw and was like in shock. And then Andrew was like, let's run away together. Let's go to Mexico. And I mean, what do you do? You just, you know, this guy murdered someone and he could very easily murder you. I mean, what do you do? Did the show portray uh, David as helping uh, roll the body up in the rug and secure things? I don't, I don't know, but I can't remember, but one of the investigating officers later said that it would have been hard to prove that Andrew acted alone in killing trail just because of the nature of the injuries and the fact that he was rolled up in that rug and, and pushed in a corner. So his thought is maybe David came home in the middle of it and then helped Andrew try to somehow clean up or move the body but mm-hmm. that he probably didn't actually participate in the murder, but maybe helped with the aftermath. Right. And then left with him. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those scary things. Like, I don't know what I'd do. Mm-hmm. Because I'd be so scared that he was going to kill me. Like, I don't did. know if I'd call the cops. I mean. And he eventually did kill him. Right. Exactly. That's that's just one of those situations you just really don't ever want to be in. At least I don't. Because I, I can sit here and say, oh, I would run away and call the police. But I'm a scaredy cat. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. Anyway. They were running away to Mexico on the show. Um the whole way Jeff was trying, I mean, David was trying to rationalize with Andrew saying, if you call the police, I'll go to Mexico with you. And you just call them and tell them where Jeff is, that he's dead and I'll run away with you. Um, or let me call the police. Let me use the phone. Just trying to get him to do something. And then finally they went to the lake and on the show, I think Andrew made him think, Oh, you can go to the bathroom or something where that was in David's mind. I'm going to escape. And then as he was running, uh, Andrew shot him. Uh, That was such a sad moment in the show. I cried really hard. It showed him running into this. uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, better skip forward a little bit. Uh, He was running into a cabin. And earlier in that episode, you saw that his dad had died and like, he had been coming out to his dad and his dad was all mad when he came out to his dad. And then when he ran and we knew the dad was dead. And when he got into the cabin, his dad's sitting there. So he knew he was dead Hmm. when he thought he had made it. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, And his dad was sitting there and was like, come on, son, let's play a game. And he was like accepting him. Hmm. Uh, It was so sweet and sad. Hmm. Okay. Well, we already talked a little about Lee and our thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, Lee's family denied that they had anything to do with Andrew, but I have trouble believing why would he kill him then, I guess. Yeah. And, and the, the ritualistic nature yes, of the murder, yes. the, the, the way he was tied, the tape around his face. I mean, that that's from what you indicated in the movie, that's kind of one of the ways that uh, that Andrew uh, like to have sex, mm-hmm. this bondage thing with the face covered. And- yeah, they showed that multiple times with different men in the show, yeah. 
Well, uh, then there's William Reese, which probably was a random. That was murder. a random, but the re- I mean, the motive there was clear. He needed the truck. All right, because he'd had he he was been he'd been driving Miglin's uh, uh, car around, mm-hmm. making calls off the car phone. So I, I'm sure he knew <laughs> that they were looking that that for that stupid. car, and he needed something else, and. Just one of those cases where William Reese happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. Um, and uh, took him down to the basement, killed him, and, and stole his bright red truck and headed south. Yep. And that's just, that's like the saddest one because, maybe not the saddest one, but that one's sad in its own way because this was a man with a wife and kids and just at work. I mean, we all go to work. We all have families and... He didn't go to work thinking a random dude was going to kill him that day. No. It's like so sad. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, you said exactly what I was going to say. That one was random, but there was a motive. If mm-hmm. he didn't know Lee, what would the motive have been? You know right. what I mean? It's like right. he had to have, I think he had to have known him. I do too. All right. Well, just some little random things that we didn't ever cover uh, that I think are interesting. Johnny Versace was diagnosed with ear cancer two years before his death, Hmm. and it was declared cured six months before the murder. So he was actually like his ear was really swollen and he didn't want to be seen places. Hmm. And, you know, it was uh, very it was debilitating for him because people in fashion, we have an image to uphold. (laughs) If I had a giant ear, I probably wouldn't want to go places. Mm -hmm. (laughs) a giant ear due to a. Due to an illness, I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't go places either. <laughs> um, and then uh, Versace was also rumored to possibly be HIV positive. Uh, his partner in the show, Versace was actually much more, uh, how do I describe this? Not introverted, but he he was very committed to uh, his partner, Antonio. Is that mm-hmm. his name, right? Mm-hmm. And Antonio was committed to him, but Antonio liked to uh, engage with other men as well. And Johnny was okay. I mean, he was okay with it. He knew, and but Johnny didn't didn't want to be with other men, so mm-hmm. he was only with Antonio. Um, but knowing his partner was also engaging in sexual activity with other men. I mean, it's quite plausible that uh, Versace could have been HIV positive, but mm-hmm. we don't know for sure. The show portrayed them to have both ear cancer and HIV. We know he had ear cancer. Donatella did say that once. Um, and lastly, uh, the Versace family called Maureen Orth's Vulgar Favors book a work of fiction that was full of speculation and gossip. Mm-hmm. So. So if they're listening <laughs> to this podcast, they'll probably say the same thing about us. Yes. Won't they? But it'd be a pretty boring episode if yes. we didn't throw in the speculation and the gossip. It would so. be. It would be. <laughs> well, do you have anything to add? No, I think we've I think we've covered this again. Just another another tragic uh, ending. Mm-hmm. Well, with this being the finale of season one, I want to know what your favorite episode was. Hmm. Mm. You didn't ask me this beforehand. I didn't. So I haven't had a chance to think about it um i haven't picked either yet i think i might go back to our very first one the Lindbergh baby 
Mm-hmm. That's probably the one I would I would say is my favorite, just because of uh, the mystery surrounding it, even to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. The trial of the century. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite episode was "Welcome to the Manson Family," mm-hmm. just because I really love '60s fashion, and that was our first. 60s episode so that was a lot of fun for me to overview do an overview of 60s fashion and i also find cults fascinating yep and and we we watched the movie together once upon a time in hollywood to Mm -hmm. prepare that was fun so yeah well dad i've had an awesome time me how long has it been like three months about three months. Yeah. This is fun. And we've got another, as we said, we're working on season two right now. And it's going to be fun, too, with some special guests. Yep. And we are taking a break for the holidays. Uh, so keep an eye out on our VIP Facebook group. And if you enjoyed the season and have not done so already, please leave us a five-star rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts, if that's what you use, that really helps us a lot uh, get discovered by other people. Yes, indeed. So happy holidays to everyone. Have Have a safe and joyous time. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.